Hello, friends. We are back with episode 149 of the Our Weekly Highways podcast. Oh, we're getting close to another fun little milestone, I guess. Um, the episode numbers keep going up, and so does each issue of Our Weekly. We're here to talk about the current issues, uh, latest resources, tutorials, and specifically the highlights from the particular issue. My name is Eric Nance, and I'm delighted that you join us from wherever you are around the world. And hopefully you're staying warm, especially if you're in the winter season, and hopefully avoiding some ice apocalypses out there. But nonetheless, we hope you enjoy this episode. And staying warm in his humble abode is my awesome co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing today? Doing well, Eric. Yep, it's uh, it's pretty chilly out here in Connecticut. We live fairly close to a lake that's that's frozen for the first time in a few years, which is, is kind of nice, going out on the ice and, and skating around. So trying to enjoy uh, it as much as we can and excited to have... Some consistency now in 2024. I think we're we're back to back weeks for a couple of weeks now on our weekly and hoping to keep it up. Yeah, the momentum is uh, in our favor, so to speak. So we'll keep that keep that rolling along here, and and as always, the R Wiki project rolls along because we have an awesome team of curators that are helping every single week. And this week, our curator is Sam Palmer, and as always, he had tremendous help from our fellow R Wiki team members and contributors like all of you around the world with your awesome poll requests and other um, heads up to us about the latest resources that you found. So let's dive right into this. Um, we know, Mike, we have a lot of advances in technology right at our disposal via the magical world of APIs to help automate a lot of the stuff that would take a long time to do. Well, there is a very interesting area that this first highlight exposes in terms of where these APIs can really help in a much-needed domain of translation of different languages for our documentation. So our first highlight is a blog post from the esteemed Our Open Side blog by Mael Salmon, who, of course, was a former curator here at Our Weekly and now is a research software engineer supporting Our Open Side as well as other endeavors. And this blog post in particular talks about the use of of the Babel Down R package to update an existing translation after its changes. And this is apparently a part of a more broader initiative from our OpenSci for publishing in multiple languages their various pieces of documentation. And they have been, as part of that effort, this Babel Down package has been developed to help translate Markdown-based content with leveraging what's called the DeepL API, which before this, I actually didn't know this exists, but apparently this is a full-fledged API built specifically for translation across many of the common languages in the world. So in this blog post, Mael walks through a pretty um, simple example, but yet very relatable. Having an existing Markdown document in English language, and then as it's being kicked off, how would you go ahead and translate that to French in this example? So we have a very simple markdown syntax, which has got a typical heading, subtitles, and narrative inside. The Babel Down package has a function called DeepL underscore translate. Give it the path to the markdown file, the source language, the target language for translation, and there you go. It's going to call the API under the hood, and you'll get that text right back in this case, in the French language. Looks good to me, although I'm not a French speaker, so I'll I'll defer to my Alan Overs for the authenticity of it. But that's not all. That's great for, like, your initial document. But what happens if, like anything else, you're going to update that document 
you know, through, you know, maybe pull requests from your collaborators. Maybe you got a new feature you want to document in that package or tool or whatever this is meant for. And so assuming that this document is in version control, because, well, if you're not using version control, you should, especially for larger efforts. Mike and I can attest to that. Um, the Babel Down package is doing some pretty clever things under the hood to detect the changes that are happening in this document so that when you feed in this updated document to the, the Babel Down package, you can, there's a function called DeepL underscore update where it's going to take this um, newly changed file. And again, with very much a similar function parameters as the kind of the initial launch of the of the um, translation, you will get that new updated language of the document in French with your changes reflected. Now, this is using apparently a hybrid of the get kind of diffs under the hood, but not just that. It's actually translating the representation of that markdown syntax of that file into XML representation. Because again, in the web, even though markdown looks like we're just writing this in plain text, when you render it to HTML, you're putting it into another markup language and XML and HTML are very much related in that space. So apparently this XML representation is a bigger help to pinpoint exactly what is changed in that document so that she, the, the user of the Babel Down package doesn't have to send the entire document back for retranslation. It's only going to send the bits that change. And just like anything in the API world, there's no such thing as a free lunch sometimes. So if you were sending a voluminous, you know, lengthy document over and over again, that could perhaps incur some costs if you're leveraging this API more regularly. So being able to only take what you need and translate it back, I think is a really neat feature and pretty welcome, I'm sure, for those that are using this regularly. So this is a very much um, scratching the itch of a big need in the community as a whole in data science and other domains of making sure that we make our documentation for our tools, packages, or other like analytical pipelines as accessible as possible to those around the world. So I'm really excited to see just all the nifty things going on under the hood with this Babel Down package. Something I'm going to keep in mind for my open source projects in the future. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Eric. And I think this is a topic that we've talked about on previous episodes, you know, trying to make R and the packages that we develop and the documentation that we write as accessible as possible to as many folks as possible, right, around the world, because R is an international uh, programming language. And, and that means that we should try to do as much as we can to try to accommodate those folks. And the fact that the people working on, on Babbledown, including Mael, have provided us with this tool to just make it much easier for us to do so is is awesome um, i think it's what open source is all about and i really liked sort of this walkthrough with the the api this deep l translate function is, is really cool uh, as you mentioned it allows you to specify your input file uh, where you want your output file to be written to your source and your target language and one interesting argument that i saw is an argument called formality 
Uh, and in the blog post, Mael has specified this argument uh, as the string less. But I imagine that you could uh, have your translation be, be more formal or less formal or, or maybe somewhere in the middle. I'd be interested to learn a little bit more about that. And I imagine that that's sort of a, a parameter that the API uh, itself handles, which you know is really interesting. I think that there's probably a whole field of study here in terms of language and, and translation, and you know how different cultures represent formality versus informality. Um, but I, I just thought that that was pretty nifty that that argument exists, and would be interested to see sort of how changing that argument would change the output. And I imagine that it, it fully depends on on your input text and, and how specific. That is uh, this this DeepL update function is is really impressive too, and also really impressive that it doesn't use the git diff at all. As you said, it, it's this XML representation, and it looks like there's a package called Tinkar that sort of helps uh, with that translation between uh, your original document, its XML rep- representation, and finding the differences between those two XML structures. So that's that's really fascinating to me. Sort of reminds me of, of the Waldo package, maybe in some of its functionality and, and being able to compare two files against each other. Recently worked on a project using the Waldo package uh, where we're just reading you know this, these .txt files which have this this really sort of strange structure but we're able to really easily show our end users sort of the differences between uh, two different .txt files which is is super important to them and it's it's just incredible sort of what the the community has created in terms of these packages that allow us to identify these differences and then take action based upon the differences that we find so this is a, a really nice short and sweet introduction into uh, how these deep l functions within the Babel down package work and maybe able to help you out in your own work yeah, I'm even thinking if I do like open source shiny work in the future, having like a toggle for like changing the language of like the interface elements. But then, yeah, it does bring up a lot of possibilities how this could be tied with something like Babel down. I'm that, the the wheels are turning or this could make my apps way more accessible. So this is really neat. And moving on with our second highlight today, um, we got, you know, as we talk about a lot on the show as well, yes, the community of our packages can supercharge so many of your workflows in data science, tool development, computing in general. But you know what? Base R itself comes with a lot under the hood. And honestly, sometimes it doesn't get enough of the spotlight. So that's where this blog post is going to shed a little bit of much needed spotlight on some additional functions that may come from base R, but they're definitely not so basic and they're quite powerful. And this is authored by Isabella Velasquez, who is a senior product marketing manager at Posit. And she does really great work of her blog as usual. And um, this blog post in particular, we'll get to the meat of this shortly, but she's got some bells and whistles here that I think you're going to really like as we, we talk about this. But she opens with the uh, list of six functions, actually, um, and an operator on top of that, that she's been using quite a bit and things that deserve a little more love. And we'll hit each of these quickly one by one, but um, we probably won't do each of them enough justice. But you may have seen as you've like perused maybe someone else's R package, you know, source code. 
that sometimes at the end, instead of an explicit return state or return of like a function parameter with a return function, you might see a function called invisible put in at the end instead. What this really means, and a cool name by the way, is that you are in essence returning a temporarily invisible copy of the object. So it's gonna still execute normally if you run this like in the R console, but then if you wanna save this to a variable, it's not going to print the result when you run that function after saving it to the variable. So you can kind of run it interactively with just calling the function itself and then also when it's not. Um, but here's the cool part about this blog post. You're gonna see the snippets of code, but you notice that little run code button at the top there? Guess what, folks? You hit that button, it's gonna run it in your web browser. Two guesses what that's powered by. I smell a web R implementation here. This looks really nifty. So this is, this is just as an aside here, this is the potential we're starting to see here, folks, is that on top of sharing code to do something, WebR, WebAssembly in general, is going to let us try it out in the browser without you installing a single thing. So if you're a new user to R, man alive, this is a great time to get into the language of these kind of resources inside. But you can quickly see the examples that, um, my, uh, that Isabella puts in here and run them yourself and see what's happening. So it's really, really neat to see. Um, so invisible definitely is something I'm starting to use more in my uh, function authoring um, in the future. Another one that I did not know existed, so you know, you know, mission accomplished for her blog post is the no quote function, which basically means if you wanna show the syntax of like a character string, but don't want the quotes around it, you can simply feed it into the no quote function and now it's gonna print as if you don't have the quotes around it. I think this can be very helpful, especially as you're dealing with HTML language, like links or other things that you want to maybe copy into another program or a browser toolbar, then having that no quote function for like a URL type function that she highlights here would be very helpful to let you copy and paste without too much friction there. Um, so I could see other uses for that as well. Here's one that brings back memories for me in my very early days of my R usage of visualization is the coplot function. This is a very handy function when you have you know, a situation of analyzing multiple variables at once where you could look at different pairs of variables, perhaps even conditioning on another one as well and you can quickly kind of get a read for how these variables are going to interact with each other visually. Great for correlation analysis or other association analyses at a, at a very high level. So that's all built right in. Very nice, straight to the point. You can even customize how the rows are constructed and everything like that. So really nice examples throughout. This one, I have theories on why it's named this way, but we'll see what you think, Mike. NZ char or NZ car, depending on how you want to pronounce it. When I look at that name alone, I honestly have no idea what that does at first glance. But what this function really does is that it is a way to simply return true or false on whether the character vector that you supply to it is empty or not. 
Now, NZ, at first I thought, does that mean like non-zero? Mm, I don't know about that. But then I thought, well, here's a, maybe an Easter egg. Uh, maybe, this is speculation on my part. We know, if you're a historian about the R language itself, that it was founded by Ross Ahaka and Robert Gentleman while they were teaching at the University of Auckland in... New Zealand. Wait for it. New Zealand. <laughs> I... I cannot tell. I I don't know. I've never seen this in writing, but I wouldn't be shocked if there was a little Easter egg in there somewhere. Because why is it called NZ Char otherwise? I don't know. But in any event, I don't use this function enough. Have you used this function before, Mike? NZ Char? No, I haven't. I haven't. I've seen it. Uh, obviously, just come across like my uh, you know sort of automated uh, whatever it is you know within our our studio that sort of pops up uh, different functions for you as you start start typing um, but I don't think I've used it before let me see if I can take a look at what the documentation says about nzchar I nothing, did look at this before the show. I yeah, didn't see any references any, to my you know, specific thinking there. <laughs> Easter eggs there. But I would have thought non-zero. Well, the NCHAR obviously means number of characters. Yes, that so, one I get, yeah. Yeah, number of, I don't know. I don't know. Because it's not number of zero length character vectors. It's, it's the opposite. Right, right. So if you're listening, um, we'll let you know how to get feedback to us because we love to hear theories from all of you in the audience on this particular be awesome. one because I've I've wondered about this for years, but admittedly, I've not used the function much in daily practice. But hey, now if I have a need to check if they're empty or not, I will leverage this for sure. Well, I wonder if, you know, sometimes I feel like functions like this, especially within base art, sort of inherit their names, maybe from the, the C functions that underlay them so i wonder that if there's could a, be a relationship there that could be because r is standing on the shoulders of c fortran and the like and of course the s language yes, before yeah. r so there's a lot of legacy under the hood that you know <laughs> you could go down lots of rabbit holes with the history of r on this so all right we'll move along here another function that i meant i have a checkered past with curious your pass on this mic is the with package the when i first used this this was in essence a shortcut function for me where if i wanted to feed into an another function in this case the example um isabel puts in here is the plot function and you're feeding into it a data frame but there are specifically variables of a data frame if you're lazy and don't want to type like in this case mt cars dollar sign hp or mt cars dollar sign mpg you can use the width function supply the data frame and then the plot function and just reference the hp and mpg without the dollar sign syntax not too dissimilar to you might see in a tidyverse pipeline as you're doing the piping operations yes it is helpful in this case but i have tripped myself up more than i care to admit when i use this in the past so admittedly i moved away from it but hey you know what it is a way to to take that shortcut as long as you use it responsibly i would guess yeah it's another it's another option not one that i admittedly use very often but it is an option Yes, it is. And now this next one, I knew about what I'll call the single version of this, but I didn't know there was a plural version of it. And that is the length function with the S at the end, because I use length all the time to check, you know, the like it says the length of a, a number str or string or whatnot. 
But if you want to quickly check for each element in a vector, length is basically a shortcut to like the more verbose like S apply or L apply syntax for doing this. So this is great. This may be a, another shortcut that you can put in your toolbox instead of having to do a per map on using length under the hood or, or an S apply under the hood. So that was, that was a new one to me uh, for sure. And then here comes the operator that I admittedly should have used way long ago. And that is the called the null collasing operator. I'm probably not saying that right. But if you've seen in various conditional logic, the percent sign two vertical pipes and the other percent sign closing it, that is this null collasing operator. And this is a shortcut. If you've ever done a check for if an object being null or not, and you've got like a, an if statement, if is dot null something, then return something else, return something else. This is a shortcut to that. And also, the esteemed Jenny Bryan herself highlighted this in one of her talks at USAR itself in 2018, which is linked to in the blog post. Um, so part of her um, underlying kind of theme of code smells and things that you can shore up in your day-to-day -day coding development in R this operator, she shows some great examples of how it streamlines a whole lot on, you know, that if-else syntax. So, so that's, that's a whirlwind tour of all this, but there's a lot to choose from. And, of course, that just scratches the surface of what Base R has. So Isabella concludes the post with some additional blog posts from others in the community on what they've seen in Base R that's been useful to them. So really like to see it. And, again, love, love the idea of being able to run the code directly in this blog post to try things out. So awesome stuff all around. I think it is thanks to Isabella's implementation or integration here with WebR that I have finally wrapped my brain around what the invisible function does because I have seen it in so much code on GitHub. I have never used it. I still don't know where I would really have much of a use case for it, maybe in some of our more object-oriented programming, but you know, really the idea again there is that uh, your 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 function is primarily called for it, its side effect. So I guess one of the examples um, that I read up on, I can't remember whether it's within this blog post or, or outside this blog post, but it's like the the right CSV function from the readr package. Mm -hmm. So that's that's obviously going to write a CSV somewhere to, to some destination path that you supplied and won't return anything within your console when that happens, right? Most of the time you're doing that and you're not you're not assigning that write CSV function to a variable. So you wouldn't know, right, that that would potentially ever return anything. But if you did assign that to a variable, uh, it would actually return the data frame, I believe, to that variable, right, right. which is uh, which is pretty interesting. Um, you know, it makes me curious about how many different functions out there do have this invisible call at the bottom of them, such that if you did assign that function to an object, um, you know, that object would be populated with with something. Uh, so I think it's interesting. I think it's really good to know. Maybe something nice to have in, in your back pocket. Um, 
and I've finally wrapped my brain around that. And I'm not going to walk through all the other functions that you walked through, Eric, but I will just note that the this null coalescing operator, I, I think, is going to save me a lot of code writing once it's finally integrated in base R here shortly, um, as opposed to, you know, in just about every project I'm working on, I, I do have some test for if if this is null, right, then take this action within some particular if statement. Um, the coalesce operator, the, the coalesce function within SQL, SQL, has been huge uh, for, for Catchbrook and a lot of the SQL work that we do for our clients on some particular uh, address standardization projects where we're, we're, we're trying to test if, uh, you know, the, the user has a valid address to right as a second line in their address like a p.o box or something like that or not so that's that's a function in, in sql that we use really really often uh I, I believe that within dplyr there is a similar coalesce function as well that can return sort of the first non-null uh value within a list of values that you you pass it so we i find that pretty handy um and maybe some other folks will as well, but I couldn't agree more that the WebR implementation here that allows us to actually touch and feel these functions as we're reading about them is a game changer. So thanks to Isabella for taking the time to do that. And I am going to dive deep into the GitHub behind her Pipe Dreams blog here to see how she did that. Yeah, and the best part is, in fact, I remember when I first saw these kind of posts, I would see the run code and I would I would hit it. I mean, this reminds me of the Learn R package a little bit too. But then I realized, oh, wait, I can actually click in that code box and change it myself. Like, it's not just the pre-canned example, no less. You can experiment with all this, which makes it even more fun. My goodness. So you can kind of see why this is going to become a huge in the realm of teaching, the realm of illustrating these concepts. I mean, think about this, Mike. I know we're not far off, I think from a packages documentation site, literally let you run the package code itself as a way to try it before you quote unquote buy it, so to speak. I can't wait until we can integrate that into our package down sites. It's going to be incredible, right? Within your examples or, or wherever uh, your, your reference, that's going to be huge. And, you know, from the first blog post that we ever saw with WebR chunks in it to where we're at now, uh, in mm-hmm. particular, this installation of the the tidy tab package in Isabella's blog that's coming from our universe, the installation is so fast, so much faster than it used to be. I think we were waiting like you know two or three minutes previously, and now you know we might be waiting ten fifteen seconds. Yeah, George Stag, the the engineer behind this at Posit, he is um, he's doing some divine work here, I must say, to make all this happen, and we are all super super appreciative for it. So we've. This is an area that I've mentioned on this podcast. I'm exploring very actively right now, and the possibilities are are practically endless. But um, yeah, and and credit to Isabella for again putting a much needed spotlight on these gems inside the R language itself that you get every time you install the language for free, just like everything in R. It is open source, all for you to leverage at your leisure. And speaking of interactivity, Mike, as we saw in Isabel's awesome blog post from the last highlight, making it interactive with the WebR functionality, well, in the Quarto ecosystem, now we've got tremendous ways to make interactive dashboards as well. And dashboards, um, 
If you're familiar with the Flex dashboard package that many use in the R Markdown ecosystem, the Quarto syntax or dashboards is very similar. So you can get up and running pretty quickly, but just what is the easiest ways for you to make that into a more interactive display and not just a static display? Well, friend of the show, frequent contributor Albert Rapp is back once again, returning to the highlights with his uh, latest Three Minutes Wednesday style post of making a Quartal dashboard interactive. And you might say, well, just how do we go about this? Well, this is a continuation of a previous post where he put in the syntax needed to make, in essence, a placeholder dashboard. We've got, you know, a column here, a column there, and a row below it, and then a sidebar, but nothing in it yet. So how do we replace all that with things that can be both static or interactive? Well, just like anything in Quartal, give yourself an R code chunk or even a Python code chunk, and you'd be able to add in things like a really nice markdown syntax for your sidebar. You can leverage in HTML tools, a hidden gem, I use this a lot in my Shiny apps, the include markdown function, where instead of writing the markdown literally inside the source code of your app or your UI function, you could have that as an external markdown file. Just reference that markdown file, and it's going to compile it in the web, web markup and put it anywhere you want in your HTML report or Shiny app. So he does that in the sidebar with a little bit of narrative around um, the, uh, the, the dashboard itself. And then let's spruce it up with some nice tables, shall we? And that's where the first example of a element to put in this table or put in this dashboard is a table of the Palmer Penguin set using the very incredible GT package by Richione over at Posit. Love this package and it gives you a very attractive looking, static looking, uh, table, which again, for many purposes would be very, very good for the majority of reports. Now, of course, no dashboard would be complete about some form of a, you know, more traditional visualization. And that's where, of course, ggplot2 will feed in very nicely into a quartal dashboard or any type of report for that matter. But on the own, that is static, right? How do we make that interactive? Well, Albert uh, highlights another um, package that didn't get a lot of love initially, but boy, it sure took off, especially last year. The GGIRAF package or GGIRAF package, depending on how you want to pronounce it. I still don't know which one it is, but I'm going with either one. Um, authored by David Gohel on being able to turn a static ggplot produced visualization into interactive with tooltips and other great um, little interactive features as well. So you can quickly give you that kind of hover functionality or filtering functionality by clicking on different points. There are lots of lots of cool things you can do with an interactive visualization on that. Now, how about going back to that table? The GT table looks great, but it is a bit static in its pre- presentation. Well, making a short little pivot to the Reactable package, which again is one of my favorites for my Shiny apps, and reports, you can have that sorting and filtering functionality inside. And then lo and behold, you could even bake in at the end of the post a way to filter the table with some controls that are embedded in the sidebar of the Quartal dashboard itself. And you don't necessarily need Shiny for that. There are ways you can build that with the observable JS code chunks or other ways 
with crosstalk as well to make that HTML element linked to that input that you put in, either the sidebar or maybe above the table or visual. And you can have that interactivity so that the user can customize how they want to display, in this case, the uh, penguin's uh, weight distribution in that table. Apparently, there's going to be another video that he releases coming soon about making those reactable tables even more interactive. So we're going to be staying tuned for that. That's a space I'm looking at quite closely in my exploits at the day job. So again, Quartal dashboards are becoming very popular now, and you can make them very interactive very quickly. And we didn't even get into the, the bits that you could do with a shiny backend as well, but um, you could do a lot with Quartal dashboards. And I'm actively pursuing this as we speak with an open source project right now. So credit to Albert. Once again, terrific post, easily digestible with links to more detailed tutorials that he's done on these various topics, including his uh, ebook that he's written as well on creating GT tables. So he's, I don't know if he ever sleeps, man, but boy, he is busy. <laughs> Reminds me of somebody else I know who I feel like never sleeps. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I would give you that idea. <laughs> but uh, this is an awesome blog post. I am already deep into Albert's code, which is uh, looks like we've got a little bit of JavaScript going on to connect these, these filters, these checkboxes to the reactable table. Um, did not know that that was possible, but that is really, really cool that he's done that. Obviously, I've seen that uh, sort of interactivity that you could deploy to a static site if you are using observable JS um, with the ability to, to have filters that drive your charts and things like that, but did not know uh, we could do that with Reactable. So that is super cool. That is some code that I'm going to be taking a hard look at and really excited and grateful that Albert has put this out in the open. You know, one thing that is consistent with Albert is his data visualization projects and products are always really aesthetically nice. Um, so I think that that's, that's awesome. And you can see him leveraging sort of the new Quarto dashboard framework where you have a, a card with a plot in it. And that card has a little icon in the bottom right-hand corner to expand that full page, which is another one of my favorite features. Our clients absolutely love that with our Quarto dashboards that we're creating these days. And, and with uh, leveraging BSLib, essentially within our Shiny apps, we have the same functionality within that card function. Uh, and it looks like maybe the GGIRAF package also allows you to download these interactive plots, maybe as a, a static image or an HTML file as well with a little icon, a little save icon in the top right-hand corner, which is just a nice utility on top of that. Uh, Albert, phenomenal blog post uh, with videos, uh, content, visuals, GitHub links, everything, you name it. So this is actually a, a pretty big repository it looks like behind uh this behind this blog post it's a blog it's a repository uh under albert rap uh, slash quarto dashboard is where you're going to be able to find that on github if you're interested and it looks like there's just a ton of examples for interactive plots tables interactive selection ojs uh, reactable plots uh, the whole nine yards so this is a wealth of knowledge baked into a fairly concise blog post which seems to be a theme with albert and i hope nothing changes in the future so thank you for not sleeping albert and uh, thank you for putting <laughs> this together 
Yeah, there's a lot to look at in this repo. And we'll have a link to this in the show notes, but it does go through each of these different iterations of how he's built this dashboard going from the completely static approach all the way to that fancy interactive uh, reactable version and interactive selection. So yeah, there's going to be a lot, a lot to choose from here. Certainly if you're a power user of things like CSS, there's a handy little SCSS snippet here too, the style things a bit more. So there's a, there's a lot to choose from in this space. So as we mentioned a number of times, highlighting the Cordal dashboard functionality, there was Many, many in the community asking for the Flex dashboard setup in Quarto, and now that is here, and I'm very excited to see to see where that goes. And just as exciting is the rest of the issue of our weekly itself, because the highlights don't do enough justice to the great content in the rest of the issue, which of course is linked as always in the episode show notes. But Mike and I are going to take a couple minutes to talk about some additional finds that we've um, found in this issue. And going back to our first highlight, our, our author, Mel Salmon, of that blog post, she's also been hard at work on another what can be a very thorny topic for both learning and teaching as well. Um, recently, I've been following this a bit on her Mastodon account. She has authored a new R package with a very unique name, which I'm probably going to butcher it right here, called Saper Lipopet. Um, yeah, send your, send your feedback to me, I guess, for that one. Um, but in any event, this is a package that is meant to help create in your R session the not-so-pleasant experiences that can happen with Git. Looking at things like, you know, maybe messed up committed files, maybe a merge gone completely wrong, this is inspired by a very famous uh, site that you've probably bookmarked if you had a problem with Git called OGit. Um, you can fill in the blank on that. Um, but in any event, in your R session, you can do some very fun things to learn how to resolve some of these issues in Git itself that you often will find yourself in one way or another, whether willingly or not willingly, um, in your version control escapades. So I'm going to be looking at this because I'm going to be likely teaching some form of Git, you know, training or workshop at the day job. Maybe I'll even do that in the open source world. Who knows? But having a way to illustrate, you know, what just happens when things go wrong and let you practice how to fix it. I think that's extremely helpful because almost nothing in Git goes exactly as planned the first time around. So knowing how to handle these thorny issues, especially on those merge requests, I think is very, very helpful. So Mike, what did you find? No, that's a great find, Eric. I found that the With R package uh, has a new release uh, version, a new major release, version 3.0.0. There's a nice blog post from Lionel Henry, who's on the Posit team, I believe, uh, talking about sort of what the improvements are here. It looks like a lot of the improvements are around the performance and compatibility with base R's on dot exit function, which if you are a shiny developer, especially somebody who's authoring shiny apps that maybe connect to a database that you want to disconnect from, uh, which you should be doing 
at the end of the users at the end of the users session, not the global session, the user session. Um, you should be leveraging that. So the with our package may be able to to help you do that and help you test uh, that functionality as well. We recently put out an open source uh, R package for working with some agricultural finance data and uh, that downloads some data from the web and within my testing suite the unit tests would test that i leverage the with our package to download that data into a temp file uh, ingest that data into a data frame and run my tests against that and everything sort of disappears at the end of those unit tests running and all the the checks pass with with uh, dev tools and I don't have to worry about actual locations uh, uh, within my own machine or with somebody else's machine or, or within CRAN's machine when we finally send this off to CRAN about where uh, those those files are going to be temporarily downloaded to with R just takes care of all that for me and I can't speak highly enough about that package as well as the blog post that Mel Salmon has authored around with ours functionality that sort certainly helped me get set up there. So long story short, I am very much a new fan of, of with R. We'll be using it from here on out. And thanks to Lionel for uh, letting us know what's new in with our 3.0.0. Yeah, it's been uh it's been a, a very helpful package in my exploits as developing both apps and packages. And frankly, your idea of building this into the testing of your package I think is extremely novel, especially as you have to deal with maybe other systems or resources from other systems and you may have to download something, may have to temporarily write a config file to send to something. You don't want that left around because you're only doing it in a disposable way, maybe through a CI/CD pipeline. So with R, very valuable in that space, especially for other thorny issues, like even just having a temporary change of directory that I'm working in just for some esoteric reason because of some other pipeline. I have to be somewhere else just for that function and get back to where I was. Yeah, with R is 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 very much appreciative in that kind of utility toolbox that I have for my day-to-day package and app uh, development needs. So yeah, really enjoyed reading about version three that just got released. And of course, as we mentioned, we love hearing from you in the community and we're going to tell you about the various ways you can get in touch with us. Of course, first, everything you want to learn about R Weekly is at rweekly.org. So if you haven't bookmarked that, please do. That's where you'll find every new issue and every Every new, every back catalog, so to speak, every previous issue is right there at the taking. And if you want to join our curator team, we definitely have open slots. Please uh, get in touch with us. We have all the details on the GitHub uh, repository for R Weekly. That's linked to uh, directly in the R Weekly site itself. And also, we love hearing from you directly for this very show, whether it's me butchering another package name or whatnot, or or our uh, speculation of our history. We'd love to hear it. So you can do that via the contact page that's linked in this episode's show notes. It's always there. And also, if you want to send us a fun little boost of your feedback using a podcast app such as Podverse, Fountain, Castomatic, or the Podcast Index itself, that's all right there. We have links to how to do that in the show notes as well. And thanks to all of our previous boosters for giving us some much needed encouragement. we always welcome your feedback on that side too. And also we are sporadically on the uh, social media spheres. I'm on that weapon X thing from time to time with at the, at the R cast, but also more frequently 
I'm Mastodon with at our podcast at podcastindex.social. And I will cross post from time to time on LinkedIn. Just search for my name. You'll probably find me. And Mike, where can the listeners find you? Likewise, probably best on Mastodon at Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org. And if you want to find me on LinkedIn, best way is to search Catchbrook Analytics, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K, to find out what I'm up to lately. Awesome stuff. I enjoy seeing your posts from time to time. Your 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 hustle never stops either, so I hope you get some rest too when you can. <laughs> but in any event, we're going to stop hustling, so to speak, on this episode. We'll wrap things up here, and we'll be back with another edition of Our Weekly Highlights next week.